and welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. This is the fourth and final episode in our look at John's Jesus, a course in systematic theology. We've looked at the nature of John, the word in John, and those intriguing I am sayings that populate John. This episode will explore John through the lens of our relationship with God, leading to the ultimate relationship-defining event, Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for joining me. Perhaps the highest praise we might attain in this life is the title, Friend of God. You'll recall from last week, before we took an odd left turn through late 80s biblical scholarship, uh, that union with God is a central theme of John's Gospel. In the earliest part of John 15, the narrative follows the idea of the interpenetration of being, that's from Linwood Urban, uh, using the words, uh, remain in me and I will remain in you. By the middle of chapter 15, the practical and more immediate implications become clear, the joy and risk of becoming a friend of God. Friendship, of course, doesn't begin in New Testament times. Alicia Batten, who teaches Old Testament at Conrad Grable in Waterloo, Ontario, has written a wonderful single-volume look at the key themes in the Gospels with the title, Teachings of Jesus. In examining the idea of friendship, she too begins at the beginning, Old Testament sources and Greek writing. First, she points to some obvious ones, David and Jonathan, and makes reference to friendship in books such as Sarah and the Wisdom of Solomon. But to really flesh out friendship in the ancient world, she points to Homer and his description of the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Now, if you spent the day reading the Iliad, uh, you will recall that brave Patroclus had something to prove the day he borrowed Achilles' armor and pursued the Trojans all the way back to the gates of Troy, before finally dying at the hands of Hector. Achilles then kills Hector and retreats with the body of his fallen comrade, even hesitating for a time to dispose of it, until Patroclus himself, in an apparition, begs him to do the right thing and allow for his journey to the afterlife. He does, but not before displaying his profound grief by cutting his hair and adding a few Trojan prisoners to the funeral pyre, uh, along with dear Patroclus. It would be an understatement to say that this relationship inspired the Greeks. No less than Alexander the Great tried to emulate these two in his own relationships with his comrades, and many ancient writers echoed the theme. If friendship was the ideal human relationship, then friendship was best displayed in the context of personal risk. Here's a quote from Aristotle. It is true of the good man, too, that he does many acts for the sake of his friends and his country, and, if necessary, dies for them. For he will throw away both wealth and honors, and, in general, the goods that are the objects of competition, gaining for himself nobility, since he would prefer for a short period of intense pleasure to a long one of mild enjoyment, 
a twelfth month of noble life to many years of humdrum existence, and one great and noble action to many trivial ones. Now those who die for others doubtless attain this result. It is therefore a great prize that they choose for themselves. End quote. So the Greek world commended friendship and idealized self-sacrifice for the sake of friends, and the context of John's gospel provided the opportunity. Recall that John's community was alienated from the synagogue. They are so alienated that the third principle of the quest for the historical Jesus, from our last episode, was thoroughly violated in the book they gave us. Again and again we are reminded that Jesus defines himself as outside the Jewish community. As outsiders, then, John's community have taken the first step towards persecution. Remember that Judaism was tolerated because it was old, and the opposite was equally true. Christianity was a novelty religion, and the Romans hated novelty. Whether members of John's community were already being being persecuted is unknown, but all the evidence was beginning to point in that direction. People in John's community would have plenty of opportunity to lay down their lives for others, and therefore it becomes a central theme. So we have the context, but what about the gospel itself? You could make the case that John's gospel is an extended passion narrative with a few signs added and enough philosophy to make any Greek proud. And John, like Mark, doesn't go in for foreshadowing, just the information we need. The beginning of chapter 13 goes this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, we begin with friendship. Loving them to the end, we already know how this story ends and the extent to which his death will be dedicated to the twelve and the others who took this journey with him. It begins with them and it ends with them. In chapter 20, uh, with a second resurrection appearance, proof to Thomas that indeed he's risen, uh, are these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. End quote. Chapter 21 functions as a coda, an opportunity to look back and take it all in. They grilled some fish on the shore, shared some bread, and Jesus gave some final instructions, mostly to Peter. In between chapters 13 and 20, we read a tightly woven story that begins with farewell discourses and ends with the victory that comes through belief. I want to turn now to the events in 13 to 20, but I want to focus on what's happening underneath or above or maybe within. The the overall theme uh, for this episode is atonement, one of those great English words that provides the definition within the word, at one meant. In short, it means reconciliation with God, 
And in Christian theology, atonement begins at Calvary and the mysterious way we are reconciled with God through the death of Jesus. Notice I didn't say death and resurrection of Jesus. As difficult as it may be to hear, being that we are a self-described resurrection people, it is the cross that redeems us and sets us free, not the resurrection. Think of the resurrection as a reminder, a reinforcement of the idea that death never has the last word. But with an eye to 2,000 years of Christian thought, we have to make peace with the idea that everything we need to be reconciled with God, in a cosmic sense, happens on Good Friday. Now, we haven't done this in a while, so perhaps you'd like to pause the tape and ponder this idea that everything we need to be reconciled with God happens on Good Friday. Take a moment, if you wish. And being a mystery, atonement comes with theories, and there are several, and at least four can be explained through John, and so the rest of our time together will be dedicated to describing the ways we can be reconciled with God through the passion of Jesus in John. Again, atonement is a mystery, and so every theory is as credible as the others, and it falls to the individual believer to decide which theory speaks to their heart, and failing that, to come up with your own, which I hope you share with others. The first theory, we will call a minor theory, is the incarnation itself as an atoning act. It is best expressed by John, picked up by some of the church fathers, and like so many things related to John, has Greek roots. I call it minor because it points to the cross, but doesn't rely on Jesus' death to work. Incarnation is God entering the world in a new way. Christmas is a celebration of the Incarnation and finds expression in a passage that we seem to return to again and again in this study. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's Irenaeus, writing around 185, that gives us the in other words. Because of his measureless love, he said he became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. And this, it would seem, would have to include death. When we speak of incarnation at Christmas, we speak of God's desire to enter the world and experience everything we experience, and this includes death. All the suffering, all the pain, all the loss was and is communicated to God when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We became one. Now, the Greeks took this too far, of course, by suggesting that because God is perfect, we are joined with God through this union, and we too will be perfected. That was never more than a hope. We know by a quick scan of human history that the Incarnation did not restore us to some original perfection, quite the opposite. God gave us a goal to emulate and the tools needed to get there, but we failed anyway. Jesus didn't crucify himself. The second theory is perhaps the best known and the least appreciated. It was best described by St. Anselm and can be identified throughout the Bible and for our purposes in John. 
This theory goes by the name sacrificial atonement or substitutionary atonement and describes the way in which, to put simply, Jesus died for our sins. Call this the revival moment of this episode, with Paul and the author of Hebrews wishing that we be washed in the blood of the Lamb. But the theory is more than that. What I share is uh, Linwood Urban's excellent summary of Anselm, step by step. Our God is merciful and wants to forgive our remarkable skill at sin, yet the moral order of the universe and God's honor would be compromised if no penalty was paid. Our effort to offset the penalty is literally not humanly possible. Only something of infinite value, freely given, will repay this great debt. Perhaps the death of someone completely sinless would help, since a sinless person wouldn't otherwise have to die. And finally, Jesus is such a man, sinless and blameless in every way. With Jesus' death, God's justice is satisfied, and we are restored to communion with God, atonement. The best indication of this can be found in the famous prologue and in the trial itself. The true light that gives life to everyone was coming into the world. John writes, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness, illuminated our world for a brief and literally shining moment, but we could not receive him. In the ultimate irony in John, he came to his own, the people who already had a relationship with the one true God. Yet, religious people being religious people, they didn't much like the quality of the light, the intensity of the light, the way the light reflected on their lives, and they turned away. Now, notice what I did there. I said religious people rather than the Jews. The deep roots of Christian anti-Semitism finds a beginning in John, naming the Jews as co-conspirators, when it was actually religious conservatives who led the way, fellow Jews, like Jesus, who were fighting to define the nature of God. I'll save the details of the trial for a future podcast. Suffice it to say that the story clarifies that Jesus is blameless and became the perfect sacrifice needed to bridge the gap between humanity and God. The next atonement theory is based on scripture, and given the clearest voice in Gustav Allen's formulation, Christus Victor. Among the earliest expression of the theory is found in Romans 8, starting at verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are powers at work in the world, according to this theory, that actively seek to separate us from God. And as the great Flip Wilson once said, the devil made me do it. Uh, 
We humans are held captive to these powers, and we cannot save ourselves. We are enslaved to them, making union with God seemingly impossible. The answer comes from our old friend Irenaeus. He said the word of God was made flesh in order that he might destroy death and bring men to life. For we were tied and bound to sin, we were born to sin, and live under the dominion of death. Or another description from the first extant communion prayer uh, by Hippolytus of Rome, uh, written in 215. He freely accepted the death to which he was handed over in order to destroy death and to shatter the chains of the evil one, to trample underfoot the powers of hell and lead the righteous to light, to fix the boundaries of death and to manifest the resurrection. The final atonement theory begins, uh, belongs rather to Abelard, the moral influence theory that says, in effect, that simply by knowing the story of Jesus and his willingness to meet death, our stony hearts are changed. And as we conclude here, we have come full circle back to the no greater love of John fifteen thirteen, as described by Abelard. He wrote, Wherefore, our redemption through Christ's suffering is that deeper affection in us which not only frees us from slavery to sin, but also wins for us the true liberty of sons of God, so that we do all things out of love rather than fear, love to him who has shown us such grace that no greater can be found, as he himself inserts, saying, Greater love than this no man hath, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So this concludes our look at John's Jesus, our second and final foray into systematic theology. Of course, systematics appears everywhere we talk about God, so it never really goes away. Uh, Next up in the Master of Divinity podcast is, I'm not sure, I'm going to pause for a bit uh, in the midst of a rather busy new year here and return soon with either history, a look at the founders of the various mainline Protestant traditions, or biomedical ethics. So uh, stay tuned, listeners, and Happy New Year. If you have a moment, please leave a review at either Apple or Google Podcasts and maybe tell a friend if you think that they would enjoy what we're doing here. So bye for now.